the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm Monsignor Matthew Midas from St. Angela Marisi Parish in Florissant, and today we're going to talk about the sacraments. I don't know if you're like me, but when I was a kid, they used to show these biblical movies like The, the Greatest Story Ever Told and The King of Kings and then other book, movies like Barabbas and The Robe and things like that. And I always found myself asking or complaining, really, that, uh, gosh, I wish I could have been there. See all these epics and, you know, all these actors playing the different roles and thinking what it would have must, must have been like to actually have been there to know Jesus Christ and to walk the earth with him. Well, of course, that was impossible, or maybe not. Uh, Jesus had that all figured out. The whole idea is that Christ, um, well, let's put it this way. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his apostles that he was leaving. And this hit them as very bad news because when Jesus was on earth, these were wonderful times. He was the master of every situation. Uh, there wasn't a problem he couldn't solve. He told wonderful stories and teachings, argued brilliantly. And even all his enemies who wanted to make him look bad, he made them look ridiculous. He was so clever. So at the Last Supper, he said, I'm leaving. Uh, you can imagine the apostles were heartbroken. And then he went on to say, but it's better for you that I go. And you can imagine, again, the apostles thinking, wait a minute, you know, it's bad enough you're leaving, but how could it possibly be better for us that you go? And he said, if I don't go, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't understand what he was talking about. And yet, well, okay, so they just accepted it, and the next day he died. Well, if you're one of the apostles, you're thinking, well, he said he was leaving, he's dead. You can't get more gone than that. And so they went back to their old jobs. Remember Peter and all the fishermen were, you know, Easter morning, they're out there fishing in their boats again, went back to their former ways of employment, figuring, well, he's left us. But he did say he wouldn't leave us orphans. And he did say that he would rise on the third day. Well, somehow that all got past them. And they were caught completely off guard that when the women came back with the story, the tomb was empty and the angels said he had risen, they had to check it out for themselves and found out, yes, he really is risen. And then he started appearing to them, and oh my goodness, you know, he's still with us. Isn't this amazing? Well, for 40 days, he sticks around. Again, wonderful days. We don't know exactly what happened. We assume he was preparing the apostles for his ultimate departure. And then he took them up on the Mount of the Ascension, and he said, go into the world, teach them, make them disciples. And the very last thing he said was, know that I am with you always until the end of the age. You can again just imagine the apostles saying, boy, this is great. He's going to stick around. Oh, wow. And now he's floating away and uh, <laughs> looking up into the heavens. And the Acts of the Apostles tells us they were still gazing heavenward, obviously expecting him to come back because he had just said, I'll be with you always till the end of the age. Then the angel comes down and tells them, well, he's not coming back, not the way you expect. And so those poor guys are walking down the side of that mountain, scratching their heads, thinking, now, wait a minute. He said he was leaving. He dies, comes back from the dead, says he's going to stick around forever, leaves. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. 
Well, they did the smartest thing you could possibly do under those circumstances. For nine days, they prayed. And on the tenth day, the day we call Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came just as Jesus had promised. And it's like all the lights came on and they could see so clearly now what till that point had been opaque that they didn't see at all. And that is that, yes, Jesus Christ is still with us. Remember Jesus told them when two or more gather in my name, I would be present among them. Well, when they got together, they could feel his presence. When the Gospels were proclaimed, they knew that Jesus was there. We still have that in our Mass when the Gospel is introduced by the deacon usually. He says a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, whoever. And we say glory to you, O Lord. We can only use the pronoun you, the second person, when the person is actually present. So we know Jesus is there when his gospel is proclaimed. And it took this, the church many centuries to develop our sacramental system, but we came to realize most of all that Jesus fulfills his promise to be with us always through the sacramental system which he established. I remember back when I was in the seminary, the, the old German theologians used to call the church the Ur-Sacrament, the fundamental sacrament. Yes, it's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. That's the classic definition of sacrament. And that's exactly what the church is, founded by Christ as a source of grace. The whole idea is that there's a big difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. Through study, you can learn about George Washington, and certainly he's worth the effort, a great man. But no matter how much you study, that's all you'll get is knowledge about him. You'll learn about him. You'll never come to know him. And that may be good enough for people like George Washington or Lincoln or Julius Caesar or whoever, people from history. But when it comes to Jesus, it's not enough. Jesus doesn't just want us to know about him by reading the Gospels or whatever, but to actually come to know him. That 2,000 years later, we are not shortchanged. We can actually have the personal encounter with Jesus Christ, to know him, not just about him, but actually to know him. And we see this first and foremost in the sacramental system the church has. Because the sacraments basically preserve everything that Jesus was when he walked the earth and um, for our salvation and that we would come to know him. We talk about the different kinds of grace. We usually think of sanctifying grace, actual grace, sacramental grace. And those are valid descriptions, but they're basically descriptions of how, what the grace does for us and where we get it from. The real understanding of grace is that either grace is either created or uncreated. Created grace or uncreated grace. What do I mean? God is grace himself. Uh, we talk about grace. Grace is the presence of God. And to the point at which God is uncreated, never been created, he is uncreated grace. Okay. But when this God, who is uncreated grace, joins himself in some mystical way to one of his creatures, namely us, we call that created grace. And that's exactly what grace is. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each one of us. The fact that it makes us holy, we call it sanctifying. Because it comes from the sacraments, we call it sacramental. And because it empowers us to act as godly people, we call it actual. But it's all the same stuff. It's the presence of God within us. This is what 
grace is all about. And this is what the sacraments are here to impart to us, this wonderful personal encounter with God, making us truly his sons and daughters. It begins with baptism and our journey along faith in baptism. The scriptural reference for it is found in the third chapter of St. John's Gospel, Jesus' famous encounter with Nicodemus. You all know the story. Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, he starts, first starts, he starts to butter Jesus up. He says, we know you're a teacher come from God for no man can do what you do unless God is with him. And Jesus cuts to the chase right away. Hey, I know what you're here for. You want eternal life. You must be born a second time. And like everybody else in St. John's Gospel, Nicodemus takes Jesus ultra literally. And so he says, now wait a minute, you know, I'm a grown man, uh, my mother's dead. How can I possibly re-emerge from her womb? And Jesus said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. There's a special kind of birth, a second birth, a spiritual birth. This is what he's talking about. He says, unless you are begotten of water and spirit. Now the scholars tell us that in saying this, Jesus was using an old Latin and Greek uh, rhetorical device called hendiadus. For example, if I were to say that the, a house burned with fire and smoke, what I'm really saying is that the house burned with a smoky fire. So when Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit, he's really talking about spiritual water, a very special kind of water that has the power to impart eternal life on those who are baptized in it. And he goes on to say basically there are two births, one biological, one spiritual. Flesh begets flesh, he says, spirit begets spirit. The first birth, the biological one, we're all familiar with. Uh, a baby is born and it's a wonderful thing. But we know when that baby is born, someday that baby will die. Uh, hopefully as a grown person many decades later, but hey, it's, death is a sure thing. You're born, you die. That's the path in the biology part. Spiritually, it's reversed. You die first so that the rebirth that takes place afterwards can be a rebirth to never-ending life since the death has already taken place. That's why St. Paul writes to the Romans and says, Don't you know those of you who have been baptized, you have died with Christ? And because you have died with him, you will have a like resurrection. Because, my brothers and sisters, the whole idea is that the Paschal mystery is played out for us in baptism. What is the Paschal mystery? It's this, that Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he was filled with sin, not his, ours. He had taken our guilt onto himself. And um, so just imagine, say, for example, you were guilty of a capital murder and the jury finds you guilty, the judge sentences you to death. And just as he's about to you know, pronounce sentence, Jesus walks in and says, Your Honor, I will go to the electric chair, the gallows, whatever, in his place. Oh my goodness, thank you, Jesus. But that's exactly what Christ did. We were guilty of the sin. He took the punishment. And when he was on that cross filled with, and that's why he was so horribly, horribly brutalized, because he was making reparation for every sin the human race had ever committed, and the price was terrible. But when he died, all those sins, original sin most of all, died with him and stayed dead, but he didn't. That's the point. He rose from the dead and his resurrection was a new life, an innocent life, a holy life. 
And Christ made it possible for every one of us who are baptized to pass through that same experience. That each one of us dies with Christ in baptism and rises with him to an, not just a new life, but an innocent life. I love the way that Bishop Sheen used to explain this. He talked about, he would ask people to imagine a pasture. And in that pasture, you've got a lot of different unspoken dialogues going on. It's the, the, the grass growing on the soil. You've got the, a cow grazing on the grass. You've got a farmer back in the shed butchering cattle. And what you're going on there is a different orders of being, different orders of life. The lifeless chemicals in the soil are feeding the living grass. And it's as if the grass were saying to those lifeless chemicals, look, I'm better than you. I live, I grow, I nourish, I reproduce. You can't do any of those things. But if you are sucked up through my roots in photosynthesis, you become my food and your molecules become mine. We can't say that those chemicals die because they never lived, but still in all, they've changed their reality. They cease to be what they once were and become something new and something higher, a living thing. The cow says to the grass, look, you thought you were so great, you grass, you <laughs> against that soil, but look, I have five senses, I can move from place to place. Obviously, my animal life is superior to your vegetable life, but guess what? If I bite you off and pass you through my four stomachs, you cease to exist as grass, you die, but you become part of me, not just a living thing, but a higher organism. And so it is. The human butcher says to the cow, hey cow, you thought you were so wonderful. Look, I can do everything you can do. Plus I can laugh and love and choose and think and reason all these things because I'm a human being. But guess what? If I slaughter you, you'll see, you will die as a cow. But if I eat you, you'll become part of me. You'll be raised to a higher kind of life. Well, there is a kind of existence higher than ours and it's God's. And we are able to share that life through the death of baptism, that we are reborn not just to a new life, but to a higher form of existence. And so it is. What we like to do in the baptismal ceremony is use symbols that communicate what really goes on when a person is baptized. Uh, the first and most essential sign, of course, is the water. And a lot of people mistakenly think the water is there to symbolize the slaking of thirst. And that's a natural symbol because it, it, there is a part of that that is true. That's why every year on the third Sunday of Lent when we have the catechumens, we read the gospel of Jesus' encounter with the woman of Samaria at the well. And he tells her that, you know, if you ask him, me for water, I'll give you a kind of water that once you've drunk, you'll never be thirsty again. And she, of course, says, Let me, let's have that water. And, of course, he was talking about the spiritual waters of baptism. But most of us think that the waters of baptism wash our sins away. That's basically what's involved here. But that's not true. Uh, sin is not something superficial, something that rests on the surface that can just be rinsed off by a, by a ritual washing. Sin is something in the blood. It's like a disease. It's like something that's part and parcel of us and can only be taken away by death. And that's exactly what the waters of baptism symbolize, death, drowning. We have great prefigurements of this in the Old Testament. We have the flood of Noah that wiped out all the bad guys and saved all the good guys. We have the waters of the Red Sea that wiped out the bad guys, Pharaoh's army, saved the good guys, the Israelites. And these were all looked upon as being prefigurements of baptism and the waters of baptism.
that those who pass through them, uh, other sins die. And the point is, it, it's, a, it's a spiritual death, but so real that all your sins die with you and stay dead, just like Jesus, rising from that font, its newness of life, its resurrection in Christ. And that's what's symbolized. But before that, we take a special kind of oil and we smear it on, for babies on the chest. And it's called the oil of the catechumens. And it takes us back to the very earliest days of the church when people preparing for struggle, either soldiers uh, preparing for war or athletes for the, you know, the competition in the Olympic Games, they would always prepare by greasing down. They would cover themselves in olive oil to make themselves slippery. And it made, when in a hand-to-hand -hand combat type situation, it gave you an advantage. So this was part of the preparation for struggle. The understanding is that when you get yourself baptized, you're joining the part of the church we call the church militant, those who are fighting, fighting against the power of evil, fighting to hold on to the innocence of baptism. And it is a fight. It's a fight we must win uh, because the devil never rests. and We must be constantly vigilant. And so we uh, put a little dab of oil on the little ones um, to get them ready for baptism to symbolize they're getting ready for a fight. In the old days, they used to cover people all over with oil. It, was, it got kind of messy. They smelled like a Greek salad, too. So uh, we got now it's just that little dab. But that's what that's all about. Otherwise, why would we do that? No, it's for that very simple purpose and a very profound purpose. After the baptism, there's another oil we use, the oil of chrism. Wonderful stuff, chrism. The word Christ comes from the word chrism. The word Christ meaning the anointed one. Oil was used in the Old Testament to mark things out for God. Um, the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel were all anointed with chrism. Altars were anointed with chrism, which we still do to this day. My hands, as the hands of a priest, were anointed with chrism by the archbishop when I was ordained because my hands would become the hands of Jesus in administering the sacraments. And we put chrism on the crown of the head of the people being baptized to mark the fact that they now belong to Christ. You know, people in the old days, when they joined these different cults, the different mystery religions they had, um, say if you joined the cult of Mithras, you would uh, be asked, whether you, right before you joined the cult, whether or not you wanted to be part of this cult, and you would say, well, yes, I do. Then they asked you a second time, and you would say, yes, I do. Then they ask you a third time, you say, yes, I do. The reason why they asked three times is because after the third time you say yes, they, yes, they took a big red-hot branding iron and right on the forehead. You were marked for life. My understanding is some of these street gangs in the city, they do the same thing. They initiate new members and they carve them. There's no going back. That's the whole idea. Once you're part of us, there's no going back. Well, we don't believe in mutilating people, but we do believe in that kind of commitment that now that chrism on the forehead, which lingers for a little bit before it finally wears off, but it symbolizes a permanent change in character that has taken place in the soul of the person baptized so much so that they need not be baptized ever again. Like Jesus told the woman at the well, you drink this water once, you will never thirst for it again. And so it is. Then after all that, we put a white garment on the person being baptized. And uh, it takes us back to the parables of Jesus when he talks about the kingdom of heaven and compares it to a wedding feast. 
and how you got to wear the wedding garment to get in. It also talks about the book of Revelation where St. John, having his vision of heaven, sees all the saints and describes them as being clothed in white. The reason why we put the white garment on the person baptized is to basically dress them up as a saint. That's the whole idea. That through the power of baptism, so powerful it is, it has the power to wash us completely clean, to make us worthy of heaven, yes, to make us saintly. And that's exactly what uh, the white garment is to symbolize. I know it's kind of embarrassing that, you know, for little boys, they, they got this, most time they have this little, like, like a little wedding garment, little wedding dress that they put them on. And it's, you know, I remember, that's the, the one I have for my baptism. It shows me wearing this wedding dress, and I'm thinking, couldn't they come up with a white leather jacket or something like that for, uh, for boys? Oh, well, I, I diverge. The last sign that we use in baptism is the sign of the burning candle. And the burning candle is always a symbol of Christ and his light. Uh, it symbolizes faith because the candle throws off two things. It throws off light, which symbolizes knowledge of God. And it also throws off heat, which symbolizes love of God, the warmth of affection. Without the love, the knowledge doesn't mean much. The least agnostic being in the universe is Lucifer. He knows that God exists. There's no doubts in his mind about the existence of God. Yet he is faithless because he hates God and his God's sworn enemy. And so without the, the, the heat, without the love, the knowledge of God doesn't mean much. That's why we use a candle and not, say, a flashlight or some other source of light. The understanding is that we take this candle and we hand it to the, the parents and godparents in the case of a child or infant, uh, to the adult himself if it's an adult being baptized. But now your light has been lit from the light of Christ. You have faith in him, you've come to know him. Now you're supposed to live that way, to keep that flame burning, to keep that candle burning until Christ comes again. That when the bridegroom shows up at the wedding feast, he will let you in because you have this wonderful faith in him. Baptism is the first of all the sacraments we receive. It's the one that is that therefore the most important, the fundamental one. It is the first of the so-called sacraments of initiation that we have, uh, along with confirmation and the Holy Eucharist. Because the point is you're not really fully Catholic until you've received all three. But baptism is the first. And this, in a nutshell, is the power of baptism, is the meaning of baptism, and why it's such an important thing. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I guess people notice it now when they go to church and there's nothing in the holy water font. People still find themselves, you know, by habit, reaching for it. But the reason why we have those is to remind us of our baptism. They were able to come into the nave and be part of this church assembly because of our baptism. And it's something we take with us when we go. As Jesus told the apostles, go into the world, teach them, make them disciples, and yes, baptize them. And know that I am with you always until the end of the age. And I thank you all for listening.